Hey y'all, Pastor Amel here with another episode of Sweet Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34.8. Ice cream is sweet, but Jesus is far sweeter. Amen. And I am excited to finally get back in here. It's been a long time since I've been in here doing anything, sitting down with anybody, talking about Jesus, talking about how sweet Jesus is, and uh, thankful for my brother Sidney Dusang here. We don't have any ice cream. It's a little early. We're both trying to be healthier. You know, you start with ice cream at 10.30 in the morning. That's a bad sign for the rest of the day. So we got coffee and maybe a little bit of sweetener in there. I don't know if yes. I paid attention when you were doing that. I got a kind bar that's got some chocolate that I might uh, be able to crack open here in a little bit while I listen in here. But uh, pull up something sweet, uh, coffee, tea with sugar, honey, pull up some ice cream if you're catching this later on, and take a listen to what my brother in Christ here has to say. This is Sidney Dusang. He is a Gideon. He is an elder in his church, High Praise Fellowship. Correct. Right? And he's uh, also got his own business. He's a uh, tax professional, uh, bookkeeping, accounting. He does all kinds of things like that. And he is here because I heard him share his testimony at the Slidell Ministers Association several months ago now, and I just finally got my act together and reached out to you. (laughs) I think I had no more business cards left, (laughs) and so I took yours, which means it's on me, and that's not always the best uh, approach, but we are here, praise God, and I'm excited. So uh, I usually ask the question, what's so sweet about Jesus? You can answer that, or hey, just Tell me how you met Jesus. I think you've got some notes here for uh, everything that led up to where you are today with uh, really powerful faith, uh, living faith, uh, a faith that's uh, taken you from from some things and and put you in a new place. Amen. Well, you know, like you said earlier, I'm I'm a Gideon. I'm with the Slidell Camp here at Gideon's International. And the one thing that drew, drew me to the Gideons is, you know, you you know, we place Bibles in hotels and motels, but we also have many, many other ministries where we do uh, outreaches to um, um, Operation Graduation. You know, we do uh, the Strawberry Fest. We've been to a couple of festivals. We'll be working at the Slidell um, Antique show, show this October and stuff. But the thing about the Gideons is, yes, we try to re- reach people to talk to them about Jesus, and to, um, you know, lead them to Christ. But the primary function of the Gideons is the planting of seeds. We plant seeds. If you look at all the farmers in the world, if nobody plants a seed, there's nothing for them to harvest. Mm. So their busiest time, their most concentrated time, is preparing the ground and planting the seeds. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus always talked about seed time and harvest, seed time and harvest. Um, I think I tell a lot of my uh, people I meet in church, take a pot of miracle Grow, place it on your back porch, and let it sit. <laughs> You'll notice in about a month or so, there'll be some weeds growing because Satan's always planting. Mm. But now take that same pot and you put a tomato seed in it or green pepper seed in it. Then you water it a little bit. 
and you'll get a plant that will produce 5, 10, 20 fruit. Because without the planting of a good seed in good soil, there's nothing to harvest. Mm. And that's the thing about the Gideons that led me so much to the Gideons, was that. My actual testimony began back in 1994. In 1994, at my corporate, the company I was working for, uh, First Investors, I qualified for the uh, annual convention and went up to the Pocono Mountains in New York State with a couple of uh, other members from our um, location. One of them was a good friend of mine called Glenn Thorny. Good guy. He's ministered to me many times at the office and stuff like that. But I was kind of away from God. You know, not listen, but I really didn't listen. So we were playing at, uh, cards one time. Him and his wife were on one team, and I was on the other team. We were playing a card game called Spades, where the spades is trump for that hand. Well, I ended up with a very good hand. I had aces and kings and queens and jacks, you know. And when I counted my tricks up, I figured I could get maybe nine, ten tricks out of 13. So I made a high bid. Ten tricks. Well, when I came around, I made their bids. When I let out, I let out one of my ace, my ace of hearts and walked around. When I came to his wife, she actually played a trump because she didn't have any hearts to play. So I'm looking at my cards and I made a little small comment. I'll be damned. You know, what am I going to do now? And she had a simple question she asked me. As a Christian... It struck her, and she had a quick question. What if you were? Well, at first I thought, what if I was what? And she said, damned. Hmm. And I looked at her and said, isn't that what you just said? And it was like a hot ice pick penetrated every wall the enemy had built and pierced my heart. I dropped my cards, got up from the table, and went back to my room. I started walking around the room. I started crying a little bit, saying, what have I been saying? What have I been doing? Mm. And then a thought hit me. The Gideons, don't they place Bibles in (laughs) hotel rooms? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So I went, opened up a drawer, found a Gideon Bible put it on my bed, got on my knees, and the Bible opened up to Acts 1, verse 8. And you shall have the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, through Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And when I read that, I heard a question. What type of witness am I? Hmm. It was at that point that's okay. What I've been doing with my life isn't working, <laughs> you know. You know, so I've got to change some things. After the convention, came back to New Orleans, uh, living in Metairie, started looking around trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. I remember, hell yeah, I had a Bible from when I worked, when I was going to school in Loyola. It's got a little Schofield Bible. I started reading that. But you know, I, was, you know, I wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit, so I couldn't understand what I was reading. 
Because I could have even came to, in Genesis, and said, you know, Adam begets Seth, and this one beget that one, and this one beget that one, and this one beget that one, and this one beget that one. It's like, you know, I couldn't follow what was understanding. So I thought, well, I need a daily devotional. So I went and bought a daily devotional. It had a gospel reading, had an Old Testament reading, a psalm, and a proverb. I started reading that. Still couldn't really understand what I was reading. I was reading the words, but the words had no meaning to me. So at that time, I had a good uh, client of mine by the name of Alan Millie Buck. He was in Chalmette. I was seeing him one night, and we got to talking about God, which I tend to draw into all my clients and stuff. And they showed me a Bible they had that they liked a lot. It's called the Daily Walk Bible by Tyndale Ministries. Good little Bible. It breaks the Bible down to 365 different readings throughout the texture and daily walk through the whole Bible. And what it does is, on, before you read anything, the page, it was broken down about four different sections. One section was a historical outline to tell you what was happening in Jerusalem or in Israel at the time that this person wrote the Bible, wrote the, wrote the chapter. The second thing was the timeline, what each verses reflected in the timeline of the Bible. Then we had a little section called Daily Walk. The Daily Walk was helping you to understand what you're about to read and apply it to your current circumstances. Then it has a little insight. And the insight is a question to ask yourself as you're doing your readings. And so I started reading that. And, oh, man, the Bible came alive. I started, the more I read, the more I wanted to read. So, for over a year and a half, I read, went straight through that Bible. Mm. From A all the way to, to Revelations. And the next year, I started over again. So I reading, reading, reading again. I kept reading, I kept reading, I kept reading. So the, more, the more I read, the more I wanted to read. But then I was noticing I was missing something in my life. I was missing a church. I haven't come out of an old, another uh, denomination, which I felt was very hip, hypocritical. You know, they said, oh, yeah, you got to go this way. But, you know, at their church fair, the two most popular places was their Vegas room for gambling <laughs> and their beer truck and, and bar, yeah. which, they, which all the men gathered around to get drunk. It's kind of like, Wait a second. <laughs> you know, yeah. Something's wrong here, you know. So I was kind of like hesitant of any kind of churches and stuff. But the more I read of my Bible, the more I kept leading to a church. So in the summer of 96, I felt led to go see a church, High Praise Fellowship in Shalmet. Well, coming from this other denomination, you know, the first Sunday, I sat out in front of the church just watching these people go in and out, go in and out. <laughs> what kinds of people are these? I was warned about these old Pentecostal churches <laughs> and stuff. But anyway, I said, well, you know, they look like everyday people. So the next Sunday, I walked in the church. And when I walked through the doors, I felt something in my heart, not just on my body, but in my heart that something was different here. And when I went into the sanctuary, it was like somebody put a chain mail suit on me. 
the heavy presence of God. I was saying, God is here. Now, of all of the churches I've visited here in Chalmette, in Markfield, my family is from, in Houston, what I've been to, in Lafayette, in um, Little Rock, Arkansas, yeah, but it's like there's something different here. And when I sat down with the pastor at the praise and worship, gave his first teaching, it was like I was the only person in the congregation and he was talking to. It felt personal. Mm. It felt identifiable. I understood what he was talking about. And then now I've felt, okay, I'm home. This is my church. Mm. And after that, I had several of the um, congregations say, look, we're going to this church. We're going to visit this church. We're going to visit that church. We're going to visit this church. Do you want to come visit this church with us? I said, no. <laughs> it was like, well, maybe I knew. It was, No. I've got no need to. <laughs> you know, I have my church. I don't need to visit anything else. So um, that was that. That was June of 1996 that I found the Lord there. And then about two months later, I ran into a cousin of mine, um, Earl Cologne from St. Bernard. He was also a big member from um, the other denomination. And um, when we ran into each other, I looked at him, he looked at me, my first words out, because I knew the, our families was part of this big denomination, was, does your mother know where you are? <laughs> and we both said the exact thing he said to me, I said to him. <laughs> and he said, come over here, let's sit down and talk. I said, where do you sit? I said, I sit right here. Actually, I was sitting four chairs from where he sat. Wow. But we never paid it. But when I went... I was there to talk to God and have God talk to me. I wasn't there to look at who's doing praise and worship, who's giving a message, who's giving a, a prophecy. I was there to hear from God. So Earl took me on his wing, started mentoring me, talking to me about God, what God can do for me, uh, the principles of, of, of uh, uh, Christianity and all that. And he finally had me, I mean, when I was with Glenn Thornley at one time, he did lead me to Christ to say the prayer. But it was just words. When Earl led me to the Lord, it was confess with my mouth, believe and I believe in my heart. Because yeah. when you read Romans, you can believe as much as you want in your heart, but if you never confess, you haven't fulfilled the Scripture. You can speak as much as you want. But if you don't believe it, it's not in your heart. When I did that, I felt something in my heart. So he continued to mentor me and so on. Then right after Christmas, 1996, a pastor Chuck was talking about a, um, you know, when you feel led for something, write it down on a, on a piece of paper and make it plain, like in Malachi. Mm. So uh, Earl had talked to me a little bit about getting married. So I'd never been married before. My mother had always talked about me getting married. My cousins talked to me about getting married. I mean, I was almost 40 years old. I was over 35 and never been married. Never even a serious girlfriend for a long time. I mean, most of my relationship lasted six months, and that was it. We, we moved on. So um, I said, well, you know, if God wants me to be married, he'll let me know. <laughs> so I heard this coming from the pastor. I said, let's tell you what. God, okay, 
if you want me to marry God, I will follow your lead because I'm very poor about making my own choices. (laughs) (laughs) The first step of wisdom. I need to know what your choice is for me. So I took out an index card. I started writing down. First thing I want in a helpmate, if you have a helpmate for me, is, you know, your choice, God, not mine. (laughs) Second choice was my helpmate had to love Jesus more than she loved me. Mm. Because then I could never disappoint her. I may make errors, but since I wasn't the love of her life, I could never disappoint her. And then I made you, you know, baptized in the Holy Spirit, you know, comes to church on Sundays, active in ministry work. You know, everything on my list was spiritual. Nothing about what color her hair is, what color her eyes are, um, how tall she is, nothing in the physical realm. And I started praying over that, started praying over that, praying over that. Well, on January 25th, we had a ministry at High Praise, and I was there that night, and I was praised during the praise and worship section. I was singing in songs. But since I can't carry a note in a bucket, singing is not my forte. So I was sitting back and just praying, just praying. And I heard this voice behind me. And it was the voice of an angel. So, oh, God, you know I can't sing. So you sent an angel in to sing behind me to cover him. My noise, because we're supposed to make a joyful noise. <laughs> they don't want it to be in, in, in the notes and stuff. So I said, praise God, look at this angel. So, so I, I turned to look. One of the ladies from the church was behind me. And she was in the spirit. She had her hands up, her eyes closed, and she was just in the spirit, praising and worshiping God. And her voice pierced spirits. And I looked at her. In an audible voice, I heard from God. This is the one I have chosen for you. It would not be an easy walk. You have difficulties, trials, and tribulations. But if you want the best for me, this is the walk you'll have to do. I turned back around and gave praise God and said, I accept. Lead me to where we need to be. And so following that for a couple more weeks, after church on Sundays, we'd all get together. A bunch of us would get together and go out and have maybe coffee and donuts or just some coffee and breakfast and stuff. Um, about, about 10 to 12 of us would get together and go, go and have breakfast. Well, the girl's name was Camille, and she was always there. And so I was thinking about all this in the back of my head. Well, at the end of every evening, it always ended up being Camille, a friend of ours, and myself, just the three of us. Sometimes it was Pat, Miss Aline, sometimes Dee Dee, sometimes Jennifer. You know, it was all, we always had a chaperone. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about different things that were going on, but we always had a chaperone. It was always talking about how God was in our life. Hmm? And so finally I got the courage up to ask her dinner. We went to dinner. In fact, a friend of hers called me up and said, 
you know, why don't you call up Camille and ask her to go to dinner? <laughs> and I was praying about how to go about asking her. She said, look, I have a phone number. Here's a phone number. You call her. You ask her dinner. She's waiting for you. <laughs> so I said, Okay, <laughs> you know, I believe it's God. If I know it, you know it. So it's you know, two or more witnesses. So, so um, we had gone out a couple of times. Then right before Easter, about two weeks before Easter, you know, I'm, um, I'm feeling a little off. Yeah, I got a little, got a little, found out I got a little fever. You know, my stomach was full. Yeah, I wasn't hungry or anything. And I feel a little tightness in my stomach and stuff. And I had a little low-grade fever. When I checked, it was 99.5. So I took some over-the-counter medication. The fever broke. I said, okay, I think I'm doing good now. Well, the fever came back. So, you know, I took a more over-the-counter, and it broke, and it came back. And it kept, it kept breaking, kept coming back. So over the whole weekend, from Thursday to Monday, it kept coming back. I got a little grade of 100, 99.5, nothing big. I said, okay, I got some kind of a flu, a bug or something. Let me get to the doctor's office. I have to go to see a doctor. So I went to a medical center uh, in Chalmette. I went down through the ER and said, look, this is my symptoms, stuff like that. You know, I'm probably going to need a shot or something. So they brought me in. They drew some blood. And they um, did an ultrasound on me. Checked my temperature. Gave me some medication. Gave me an IV and stuff. And they came back to me. In the afternoon, they said, okay, well, we're going to move you to the University Medical Center in New Orleans. Because... They're the best people to do this kind of a transplant. And I'm sitting in the bed going, transplant? Mm. So back this train up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> transplant what? You know, what are you talking about? I said, okay. We've determined you have some type of hepatitis. That's what's causing the fever and the stomach stuff. The problem is that the hepatitis you have... We don't know if it's A, B, or C. Whatever you have is so aggressive, it's destroyed over 60% of your liver. Wow. You're in critical, critical shape. In fact, once your liver gets down below 60%, and it was, mine was so aggressive, they were saying there was no way for them to reverse the process. Wow. Livers do recover, but only with 25, 30%. You need 60, 70% of your liver <laughs> to recover the remaining veins. I only had about 40% of my liver left. So I said that, you know, you're imminent. You have to go and get this transplant. Mm. So they sent me up there. I was able to, um, I called my mentor Earl. I was able to have my mother, get, I got in touch with my mother, and she was coming to meet me up there, and she called Earl and told him what was going on. And so um, Earl came by and visited with me for a few minutes, and then he left, and then they, it was the end of uh, visitation hour, so I was sitting back, waiting for the doctor to come in and tell me what's going on. My doctor came, so our doctor came in and said, I'm the transplant doctor. We're going to be doing your transplant. This is my team. This is my assistant, this is my nurse, this is this nurse, this is the anesthetist, this is this person here. We're the ones. We have our clothes here at the hospital. We each have a room here at the hospital waiting 
to get the calm, the, trans, the, the extra liver, it's on its way. Right now, you're the number one donor on a donor list in the entire country. But there's nothing available for you. Between your blood type, the other things we'll need. There's nothing available for you. But we're staying here until we find out that the liver is on its way to be transplanted. So we can go right from here, take it to the operating room. Now, the last ultrasound we just did showed your liver is left with only 35%. You're 65% gone. doesn't exist anymore. When you reach 75% going, you die. Mm-hmm. Wow. Your liver literally poisons your other organs. Wow. You have, once you get, now, because your liver is so damaged, there's nothing we could do to stop it from going completely bad. So when you reach 75%, we're going to have to remove your liver. But it's not like a kidney where you have a backup. You have no other backup. Once we remove your liver, we can keep you alive about six, about three to six hours on the table. But once we remove your liver, somewhere between three to six hours, you're going to expire. We have no way of stopping it. We figured that will happen somewhere between now and the next 36 hours. Wow. I said, so you're giving me 36 hours to live? <laughs> he says, well, you can't live without a liver. Yeah. He says, man, there's no one available right now. He says, hopefully, someone will get killed somewhere around the country, <laughs> not damage their liver, and we can transport your liver here, their liver here, to put in you so you can live. We're here, so you have a good night. <laughs> <laughs> you tell somebody, someone's got, you know, he's 36 got to hours to live. Yeah. Have a good night. What are you, nuts? <laughs> you know? and so I'm sitting back saying, put my hand, and I said, Jesus Christ, what did I do to myself? What's been happening? And as loud as I'm speaking now, Again, the audible voice of God came to me. In Second Chronicles, chapter 20, Jehoshaphat was being besieged by three armies. He went into prayer and fasting, which is what I've been doing because I haven't been eating in four days. <laughs> but he told uh, Jehoshaphat, the battle is not yours to fight, as he spoke to me. The battle was not mine to fight, but his. Like Jehoshaphat, you're going to have to dress, take up your armor, go meet the enemy, but you will not have to fight. I will fight for you. Suddenly, the peace of Jesus descended upon me. Then God said, in eight days, you will walk out this hospital. Well, I sat back saying, you know, just the peace of God. No word. 
Excuse me. I said, thank you, Lord. I started praying in spirit. Because two months earlier, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Receiving Jesus, you receive the Holy Holy Spirit. But you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit until you get the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It was Kenneth Hagin taught me that. He was at a, a conference. He had a conference in Laplace. And I, he led me to, to the Holy Spirit. I started praying in the Spirit. Just praising God. Praying in the Spirit. The nurse came rushing into my room <laughs> saying, Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you all right? Oh, I said, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, just, I'm just talking to a different doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but the peace was all over me. Before she was like, you seem a little different. I'm fine. So she left me. But I had complete peace. The next morning, the um, um, patient representative came by to see if they could do anything for me. She was saying, well, you know, um, do you need me to write any letters to any loved ones or anything like that? I said, no. I said, no, I'm fine. He was um do you need me to get you a lawyer to talk to about a will or anything? Oh, no, I'm not worried about that. I said, uh, okay, you want to make any phone calls for you? You want to leave any? No, I don't make my phone call. I'm okay. And she looked at me and she's like, do you know how sick you are? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, yeah, but I'm going to walk out of here in eight days. And she looked at me, you going to walk? You going to what? I'm walking out of here in eight days. Said, okay. So she leaves. But an hour later, another doctor I never seen before walks in. Hey, how you doing? I said, I'm fine. You know, I'm one of the doctors here. It's okay. Um, out of curiosity, do you know who the president is? I said, mm, yeah. You know, it's you know, um, I forget uh, his name, but uh, yeah, okay. I gave him a great. It was okay. Um, you know your birthday? Yeah, I gave him birthday. Okay. Do you know where you are? And I explained to him where I was and what was going on. Going. He says, I stopped for a second. Wait a second. Are you a psychologist? <laughs> he goes, well, yeah. He goes, oh, are you giving me a psych test? <laughs> he goes, yeah. He goes, okay, well, I'm a Christian. And I believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, oh, you're a faith believer. I said, yes. I said, okay, never mind. All right, you're all right. <laughs> he got, so apparently the patient representative called the psychology department. Said, this guy's nuts. <laughs> he's nuts. Yeah, I think he's actually lost it. We got to talk to this guy. <laughs> it's like, okay. So he walked down. Well, that next night on a Wednesday, um, my mentor, Earl, he came by to visit with me. And a few minutes later, Glenn Thorning showed up from my office to see how I was doing. He came, he was a good Christian. He came by to pray for me. And then my pastor from High Praise Fellowship showed up. And then my mother and an of mine came, drove together up in my Aunt Nita. They showed up together, and I started talking to me. So I had five people in my room in the CCU, CCU the critical care unit. The hospital requirement that no more than two people at any one time mm-hmm. can be in the patient's room. And I had five. <laughs> the nurse walked in the room she took my door, and she she put all the way closed within about an inch being open, and left all five of them together. 
But we prayed, we prayed, and we prayed. They stayed with me for about a half hour. Then it was time for um, visitation hours to close. They left. So I said, okay, that was a good prayer. So I'm sitting back that noon, because at the time the hospital was drawing blood every six hours to check on my liver process. So they took my, my, uh, my blood. Now we have four primary liver enzymes in our body. The average is usually from zero to 35, 40%, somewhere around there. One of them goes up to 120, but that's about the only thing. My liver enzymes were all over 250. Mm. One of them was over 500. Whoa. So they would check my enzymes every six hours to try to track my liver. But a guy came in at midnight, drew some blood. So the guy would be back at six to wake you up and draw again. So okay. He left. One hour later, he shows up. He goes, I'm, I must have contaminated the blood when I drew it. I'm sorry. For, I, I, the, um, they had leads that they were drawing up. I had more leads in my chest <laughs> than most praise and worship teams do when they're, <laughs> when they're recording music. And so he must have contaminated. So he's going to draw it from the other arm. So, okay, no problem. So he drew some more, and he left. About a half hour later, he comes back. I'm sorry. Apparently, that leads contaminated also. I'm going to have to draw from your vein. It's, I can't do it from the, 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 the tube. It's got to come out your vein. So, well, all right, you guys stick me. Stick me. It's the third time, so he took it. He left. How about 15 minutes later, in walks the head person at the lab. He says, okay, I'm the head of the lab. I'm the tech, head tech from the lab. Okay. They keep screwing up these blood samples from you. I'm going to have to draw another sample from you, from the other arm. So, well, okay, but you know, we've got four, so much blood left. <laughs> you know, and I've got, you know, I know you get small vial, but I mean, you know, my liver's in bad shape. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, guy, can I get it straight? Because, yes, well, uh, let me take it from this part of your body where there's no lees and no chance of contamination. So he took it and he left. About 15 minutes later, in walked the doctor. I'm the doctor, the physician, who's been to college, who's the head of the entire, all the techs. And we just can't get a tech to do these things right. So I'm going to draw your blood. I'm going to put your name on this, this file. And I'm going to run the test. I'm going to make sure that we got a good reading. So he left. Nobody came back and said, finally, okay. <laughs> like I said, I only had so much of going around. So um, my normal GI doctor, he comes in around um, 7 o'clock in the morning. He's got all these papers in my hand. Well, he came at 6. He says, well, I'm going to send you out to go to ultrasound real quick. So, okay. So he do an ultrasound on my stomach, make sure take a look at my liver and stuff. He'll be back in my room. 7 o'clock, he comes back in. He's got the ultrasound test. He's got other papers in his hand. He's... He takes my file out. My file was now a three-ring binder. <laughs> they go two-inch three-ring binder. He puts it down. He's flipping through it. He looked at the cheats. He looked at my ultrasound. He's looking at the reports. He's looking. He keeps flipping pages, keeps flipping pages. I'm saying, well, what's wrong, guy? <laughs> you know, what's, what's going on? He goes, hold on a second. He put everything in and goes, like, I can't explain this. What? You can't explain I'm looking at your ultrasound. 
65% of your liver is gone, doesn't exist anymore. Your blood enzymes yesterday was anywhere from 250 to 500. Now, on your liver enzymes, if one's going up, they're all going up. If one's going down, they're all going down. All last night, the reason they kept coming back and take blood was because every time they ran the test, they got different results. One was going up, one was going down, one was staying the same. The next time they drew blood, the one that was going up is going down. The one that was going down is going up. The one staying the same was going down. Now, we couldn't get a consistent reading. The last one they took shows your liver enzymes down to just above 100. But you got 65% of your liver gone. <laughs> A 35% liver can't produce these enzymes. We cannot medically explain what's going on. And I said, I can. The only thing to let me keep in my room with me with my Bible. I picked the Bible up and I told the doctor, Jesus can. Because with man, all these things are impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. Mm. All things are possible. And I heard words out of a doctor I thought I'd never hear out of a doctor before. He put everything in said, that's all I can explain. I can't have no other reason to say, what? So he monitored my enzymes for the next two days. All my enzymes came down to normal readings. Wow. They released the transplant doctor because when he told me that, the first thing I felt, why does someone else have to die for me for me to live. Mm. What God spoke to me was that nobody else has to die for you because somebody else already died for you 2,000 years ago on a cross in Calvary. Mm. Wow. And they released me and sent me to a private room monitored me for the entire weekend and on Monday eight days after I heard from God <laughs> I walked out that hospital now when I started walking because they wheeled me in they tell you we have to wheel you out we have a, we have a chair here for you we gotta wheel you out and I told him God said for me to walk out if you want to walk behind me with the wheelchair, you can do that. Well, I'm walking but out. But I'm walking out of this hospital. <laughs> now, when I walked, I kind of shuffled. I've been, you know, eight days sitting in the bed, having bleeds, take blood taken out of me, and all this other stuff. So, but I kind of shuffled out. But I placed one foot in front of the others to walk to my mother's car, where she came to pick me up to discharge me from the hospital. And I was discharged from the hospital. 
In 30 days, they said, okay, we're going to do a 30, 60, 90-day follow-up with you. Then a um, 180, a 36, and then um, a two-year, three-year follow-up. We're going to follow up with you all these months to see how your liver's coming. I said, okay. I went back in 30 days. Did I do my ultrasound? He looked at my blood test. He came in. He dropped everything on the floor and said, I can't explain this. Not only is your liver enzymes normal, but 98% of your liver has recovered. And that's impossible from 65% gone. Now, it was going to recover. You can get probably, they expect them to get 70, 75% back. The rest was going to be cirrhosis. They faced so much damage, you're not going to recover everything back. And it would take you six months to a year to recover the whole thing. But in 30 days, the ultrasound showed 98% of my liver had recovered. Wow. I pulled out my little child caps book. You know, God's press for, for medicine. Because, you know, this is your medicine. Take it three times a day. <laughs> so when I ate breakfast, I read it. When I had lunch, I read it. When I had supper, I read it. And when I went to bed, I read it and took mine four times a day. And in 30 days, my liver was completely recovered. Wow. He says, I can discharge you completely from all your follow-ups. I said, you don't need me to come back? So you're, you're healthier than most people walking the streets of New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, you know, I have nothing to say. But, you know, you're discharged. I went to church that following week. Because I started going back to church. Praising God. Telling about my t- testimony. Praying for people. Now I'm being asked to pray for people. From there, God, you know, showed me different things about my future, what he wants for me to do, and to live my, I live my life the way he wants me to live. Camille, that girl I met that one January 25th, married me in 2003. We have two anniversaries. January 25th is our spiritual anniversary. And April 9th is our legal anniversary. And we always spend that one of those weekends. Both we spend both weekends. We take a weekend before or after to pray, see God, and Him lead us where He wants us to go. Because to me, Jesus is the most important person in my life. And to her, Jesus is the most important person in her life. I know I come in second. (laughs) She knows she comes in second. And she said that was the only way she get married again would be to someone who loved Jesus more than her. Exactly what you asked for. According to Malachi, write write it down. Lay your hand up. Pray over it. And God will give you the desires of your heart. 
Now, when he says, I will give you the desires of your heart, it's not your desires. When I give you, and the Hebrew word I give you means he can impart the desires in your heart. So that your desires become his desires. So that your plans become his plans. Because the plans of man always makes him laugh. <laughs> Sometimes I hear uh, the plans of man, it makes me laugh too. Yep. But uh, more so the king of kings, right? Yes. Wow. And since then, you know, we've always gone, we've been involved with church, different ministries. I've the lead, el- the lead usher at the church, an elder at the church. I work in the Gideon's ministry. We have a healing rooms, prayer room, where we pray for people. We lay hands on people. We prophesy with people. We lay hands on them. We've had a couple of miracles happen with that. We had one person who had AIDS. We prayed. We prayed. We had HIV. We prayed and we prayed. We laid hands. We prayed. He went back to the doctor. No evidence of HIV. Wow. I was in a hospital back in um, 2000, around 2008. I was diagnosed with, or they diagnosed me with, lymphoma cancer. I went to go, they set me an appointment with an oncologist. I went to go see the oncologist. He looked at my follow-up test. He said, the hospital made a mistake. They screwed up. They must put your first test on somebody else's. Because this person has lymphoma, we can tell. You, on this test, have no lymphoma. You're fine. Mm. Well, they mix it up or... Or... Yeah. <laughs> it's God. Yeah. You know, that's the excuse doctors use all the time. Science is great, but God is better. <laughs> because better God... Be has the final word. But Dr. Moore was saying, oh, they must have, they screwed the test up. They made a mistake. Back in 1997, 1999, I went to China for two weeks on a missionary trip. The week before that, I got bit on the forehead and behind my ear by a brown recluse. Ooh. Went to the doctor, they diagnosed, they said, yep, brown recluse. You can't go anywhere, you're going to admit you in the hospital. I signed out against medical advice and went to my church. It happened to be a Wednesday, Wednesday night service. People laid hands on me and prayed over me. I didn't tell them what had happened. I just said I had problems, an issue. They prayed. Eight days later, eight days later from that, no results. And eight is the number of a new beginning. Mm-hmm. Seventh perfection, eight's a new beginning. Jesus was raised on the eighth day. Yes. Yeah, new creation. Yes. And so, you know, I am a servant of God. I work, I have an accounting firm, which is the way I work at, but I'm accountable to God. 
my employer is God. Mm. So uh, there's a lot in there. Because uh, I think when we were talking before we came in here, you know, you did, you have had surgeries, you have had medical yes. procedures, and yes, you know. So what? What do you say to people who think you know this is crazy, or or how can you know, or whether you're going to get that miracle or not, or uh, pray and listen to God. God uses different methods to heal us. Sometimes it's a miracle. Sometimes he has you go to a doctor. I had four bypasses. I was in the hospital for two weeks, four bypasses. While I was there, a nurse, I could see she was upset. She had something really on her, on her, really bothering her a lot. Well, this is back in, um, in 2012, during the second Iraqi war. Her husband was a Navy SEAL. And he just got transferred to Afghanistan. He was on operation. He couldn't tell her, but he, all he could tell was that oh, he got, he got, she got a call from his CEO saying that he's on an operation. Can't tell you anything about it. He wanted me to tell you this much. That's all he could say. Well, she was eight months pregnant with her second child. And she was upset. They were getting reports every day of people being killed, soldiers being killed. She was upset. Well, I sat. You know, and she came in just to check on me. She was getting ready. I said, well, come in. Let me, first of all, let me pray for you. Let me, and as I prayed for her, I could hear from God. Tell her this, tell her this, tell her this, tell her this, explain this to her, explain this to her. And then tell her that, fear not, I am with him, and he'll be coming home in a month. In 30 days, he'll be home. Now his duties were supposed to be for six months. It's in 30 days. He won't be back in 30 days. <laughs> He's got to be there for, for six months. As you know, God said he'll be home in 30 days. In 29 days... He got his pass home, his discharge. Because of some of the things he had done over there, he was released to come home and stay home. Wow. And he came home in time to see his baby born. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But wow. it drew peace upon her. Now, that is why I had to go through my heart surgery. Jesus on the side of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, to his disciples, let's get in the boat and cross the other side. In the middle of the, middle of the sea, got a huge storm. Boat tossed to and fro. They rush in the back. Because Jesus is sleeping <laughs> on the back of the boat. Mm-hmm. They wake him up. You know, teacher, teacher, don't you worry about us? We're about to sink. And he got up and he got angry with them. He was upset with them. He spoke to winds and waves. Everything calmed down. They sat across the other side. They met the man. 
Cully himself, demon-possessed. Jesus rebuked the demons. They went to the pigs, and the pigs went and drowned. The man was fine. The man was fine. Told the attorney, let's get back on the boat and go back. They went through that storm, which Jesus always said, there'll be trials, there'll be tribulations. You're going to have storms in your life. We're all going to have storms in our life. There's two things he said. I'll be with you. And the reason he got angry, he wanted them to speak to the storms. He didn't tell them, hey guys, let's get in the boat. We'll go halfway across, get into a storm, sink and drown. (laughs) He said, let's cross to the other side. I forget. uh, This happens more than once. Absolutely. (laughs) I think in in the Gospels and in multiple Gospels where they have these. And I think one of them, it actually kind of gives you the impression that he intentionally sends them into this storm. I, yes. I, I don't know if it's the one in Mark because yeah. that's where the Mark 5 is yeah. where he has the demon-possessed man and then the pigs. Yeah. And, but I don't know if it's there or if it's in another iteration of that experience where it, it's pretty explicit that right. he puts them in this moment. Yes. Yeah. You know, God has a plan. <laughs> you know, he's got a plan. His plan says, let's cross to the other side. He also said, while you're in this world, there will be trials and tribulations and and problems. John 16, 33. There's going to be difficulties. But fear not. I will be with you. And again... We're crossing to the other side. Speak to these mountains. Speak to these problems. And get cast into the sea. So, uh, I come from a Lutheran background. Okay. And there's several things, you know, that you've touched on today that would make most of my fellow Lutherans... Absolutely. <laughs> squirm a little bit, but I do want to affirm kind of where you're going with this, at least in in my this sense, my personal experience, that I actually had a conversation with one of my kids. We were on vacation, and one of my kids absolutely lost their mind. Like, you know, this uh, just a terrible fit a fit of anger, a fit yeah. of rage, a fit of frustration. And and it was like this snowballing, like, oh, nobody loves me. You hate me. I hate you. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it, just, and it was like this public display. Yeah. And I actually had to drag this child <laughs> from the beach back to the house and try to throw him over my shoulder at one point because there was Absolutely. zero cooperation. I mean, I have never seen... Yeah. One of my kids quite this off, right? But listening to what they were saying, I was like, I know what that is. Yes. It's a thought pattern that's on a downward spiral, right? 
Yes. And I've been uh, – I had just done – well, not just, but relatively recently, earlier this year, going through Exposing the Enemy, uh, a study on the armor of God, and the power of our words, and particularly God's words. Yes. And I tried to explain, after I dealt with the <laughs> discipline part, yeah. like the behavior part, I said, you have to write – I want you to write this this many times. You're not leaving this room until you, you do it. I want you to write this. I want you to do that. And here's what I'm going to tell you. When As soon as you start thinking that, here's what you need to say. I gave her some verses that I yeah. use, you know, like Jesus when he's talking to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Yes. For you do not have in mind yeah. the things of God but the things of man. Yes. You know, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You have to say that. Yes. Um I don't know. There's, there's, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. You have to say it. You have to uh, actually use the sword of the spirit yes. appropriately. And and I I have never had the kind of level-headedness, the, the kind of peace, yes. the kind of stability through ups and downs that I have had, and yes. I would actually say there are less downs. Yes. Because most of the downs are probably my own fault. Yes. Because I let the devil get my thinking right. wrong. And so You're actually... You're stinking thinking. Stinking thinking. Yes. Yeah. So you do actually have to use the word of God. You have to speak against the enemy. Yes. You have to say, shut up. That's, <laughs> devil, that's shut up. It. You know, just stop it. I'm not going there. And uh, no weapon formed against yes. uh, you shall prosper, right? That's that's another uh, Bible passage that, as a Lutheran, you know, I've heard crazy Pentecostal, yeah. like you were saying when right. you, yeah. you showed up at the church. <laughs> yes. you, know, you, you showed up at the church just to scope it out. Like, yes. are these people weird? Uh, right. Are they as weird as everyone <laughs> told me they are? And you know what? We're all a little weird, let's be honest. Absolutely. I mean, people think uh, Lutherans are weird, too. Uh, but... There is something to that. I think all of the denominations, you know, God has given us, each of us, and not even like a formal denomination, but all the strands yes. of Christianity, all the all the churches, the congregations, there's one area that we may be more gifted in or more yes. clear in understanding than others, but um, I, I like to get everything I can from everybody, and that... And right. that, that has been an enormous source of help and deliverance in Amen. my life. So the, that's one of the important things. What you were talking about, you know, the, speaking the scriptures. You know, a lot of people use the word, you know, well, you know, resist the devil and he'll flee from you, but they forget the first part of that. Draw near to God, and he will submit draw near to, to God. You. Sub, okay, yeah, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee. Because God opposes the proud. He's right there too. Yeah. If you're not submitted, the devil doesn't flee, and that's one of the hardest things in everyday living. Is that I have to constantly be praying when I'm going to call a client about bad news or good news. I pray mm. when I get up in the morning time. I have my daily scripture. I have to read. I read. I have to pray on my way to work. You know, I'm listening to praise and worship on the way, and I'm praying. You know, and I'm a scripture prayer. 
Um, and I'm constantly saying scripture to cover my life, to cover my wife, to cover my house, to cover my property, to cover my work, to cover my clients. I'm praying for my clients. And they have clients who, you know, somebody diagnosed with cancer. And then suddenly the cancer's gone. Or they go through the operation. I had just recently had a, a, a client who had um, breast cancer. They were expecting it to be in her lymph nodes. Well, they wanted to do a mastectomy on her. The doctor got in, and it wasn't as big as he thought. It came out in one piece. It's not in the lymph nodes. Mm. So he had to do a mastectomy on her. So barely a cut on him. God's God, His will is for us to live a long life, but to minister to the people He needs us to minister to. Yeah, if we're just here getting everything we can while we can, yes, what's the point? Right. You know, uh, like Paul in Philippians, you know, I desire to depart and be with Christ, yeah. which is better by far, but I know that I will remain for you. Right. Um, it's... A life lived for yourself is not a life worth preserving. God's got a plan. But a life lived for others yes. is a, a life worth And uh, the hardest thing is lining our plans up with God's plan. You know, I used to be in a prayer line and when I was in Chalmette. And we'd have somebody pray all the time, call up, ask them to pray for him to win the lottery. So he could give his tithes 10% to the church. <laughs> Well, I asked him one time, I said, well, what if, you know, I mean, if 10% of the lottery is over $20 million, which would be a good payday. So why don't you give 90% to the church and keep 10% for yourself? Well, what, what, you want me to do? That's why you'll never win. Hmm. Where is your heart? Yeah. God's plans, God's prosperity for us, his will for us is for our heart. He knows our heart before we even speak it. It's not what you think you need. Where is your heart's? Mm. Do you really love Jesus? Or are you coming to church to find a single girl? <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, we come to church for a lot of reasons. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I don't know that we talked about, um, your coming to Christ, coming to faith, wasn't there a little bit of background leading up to that that one question that, you know, I'll be damned, oh, what if you were? Yeah. That moment, there's some things that I think got you to that moment where it would actually, you know, so you, to yeah. use the illustration you use, sort of tilling the soil. Yes. Right. When I, early in my life, uh, when I was an adolescent, pre-adolescent, one of the, my, my, my dad always said, you have to go to church. So I was in church every single Sunday. My, my parent, my mother took me to church. My dad didn't. <laughs> you have to go. I don't, but you do. Exactly. Which was something I always had a question about because that was one of the things he always was Embracing this fact. Don't do as I do, do as I say. Well, to an adolescent kid, I'm doing. <laughs> you know, we're a bunch of sponges. Mm. We're absorbing everything we see everybody do. 
Yeah. So when I was going to church, the denomination I had had a little booklet. Uh, each month he got a different book. And on the inside was all the readings for the entire month. You know, you had each one of the Gospels for each certain Sunday. Uh, in fact, every day of the week you had a different reading, different Gospel, different epistles to read. And um, then, you know, the, the procedure of the services and stuff like that, stand, sit, knee, or do this. Well, what I wanted when I came went to church, I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on in service and stuff. But what else? I was reading the Gospels and the Epistles. I read every single one for the month. Every Sunday, I go back to the beginning and read every one of them again. The next Sunday, I go back and read every one of them again. Not just the one for that day, but one for the whole month. I kept reading over, reading over, reading over. And so God was filling me, which I didn't realize it, with the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, the mm-hmm. seeds that He could get to when He needed me to get to it. Now, when I went to college, you know, nobody was there to tell me you have to go to church. <laughs> and so you I didn't. didn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, that was just, you know, I, I walked away. You know, and I was just out and about doing my own thing. And for years and years, I just did my own thing. I wasn't in church, you know, I wasn't reading the Bible, I wasn't doing anything. I was just, I was drifting further and further away. I was making comments like, I'll be damned. Um, Where are you going? I'm going to hell with all my other friends, you know. Mm. Just, I wasn't paying attention to the words I was saying. And Satan was having his way. God always took care. He always watched over me. But I was just bouncing back and forth off the walls. So that when I came to that point, when Linda, Glenn's wife, said, what if you will or were? It finally got to me. All of these scriptures that hit in my heart finally came out. And I was, you know, I had all these seeds, and God was able to bring them out. Yeah, we had a, we have a kind of a youth group, not a youth group, but sort of a discipling kind of young tweens and teens sort of. A few of the families here at church. Not a big group, but uh, I'm blessed to have them. And last night we we talked about something. I I mentioned something that, hey, listen, I know you may have no idea what I'm trying to explain to you right now. Right. I know. I can't can't force this for you. Right. I'm doing my best to explain to you the things that I think probably matter the most. Yes. And when I went to seminary, you know, they taught me all kinds of stuff. Seminaries often get a bad rap, like, hey, you're not doing enough practical stuff. You're not preparing these guys to come out and do their thing the right way. You know, they they got all this head knowledge, but they don't really know how to run a church, sort of. And and I I often look back and I go, you know, I think they actually did tell me. I just didn't know what to do with it right. until I got out because yes. – 
being in school and being in the in a, in a congregation and uh, yes. you know a real practical setting, it's not the same thing. No. And then I had there's a dad here too, and he's like, yeah, when I was in boot camp, they taught me all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But it wasn't until ten years later when I was out doing something that I went, oh, that's why they taught me to do it this way. Right. So, um, you know, parents especially just keep doing what you're doing. Yes. Getting the word into your kids and. Do as I do is what really happens. Yes. Yes, <laughs> Not indeed. Not do as I say. Um, but it's all about, again, I go back to the planting of seeds. Mm. You know, if there's nothing for God to water, he can water as much as he wants. Even you know, I mean, yeah. If there's nothing there, good's not going to grow. That's why you got doctors who beget doctors, nurses beget nurses, you know, um, alcoholics beget alcoholics, you know, drug abuse people, you know, it's the same thing. It's what they're seeing is where they go. It's the planting of seeds. Are you planting an apple seed? Or are you planting a peach seed? Or are you planting ragweed? Mm. Or are you planting bullgrass? We're always planting seeds. Yeah. Uh, you had, uh, I think I mentioned to you before we got in here, there's a book that I'm working on with a friend of mine about kind of reaching people. Yes. With the gospel. And I don't know if we've talked about it this way, he and I, the guy I'm collaborating with, or if maybe somebody else said this kind of recently. I, I think there was a guy a few years ago actually who said, Kind of the the process that we outline in this book essentially is the tilling of the soil. Yes, you know, so you're essentially continually not just planting seeds, but trying to soften the seed, yes. the ground, Correct. soften the ground, and uh, get out the rocks. Yes, and uh, you know, yeah, you, you plant seeds everywhere. I think I think that parable that Jesus tells. Yes. You know, he's like, yeah, I'm a, I am look like an idiot because I'm just throwing seed everywhere. Yeah. And here's what happens. Some falls in the path, some falls in right. thorns, and, and some gets scorched by the sun and choked out by the, by the weeds and stuff. But some falls on this great ground and it grows, and that's what you see. Yeah. Uh, eventually, you'll see it down the road. But I do feel like there is a sense in which if we know that that's how it happens and we can't you know we can we should scatter the seed everywhere but sometimes we got to go back over the same yes <laughs> right there there are people where like you're you're developing a relationship with them and you're helping them see over time that oh yeah like we talked about earlier yeah. people look at a pastor they're like oh pastor oh, you know yes. he's going to beat me over the head with the cross or the bible or, right. or something you know, so you're just slowly chipping away at some of those preconceived notions those prejudices right. those uh, barriers right. those walls like you, exactly you talked about uh when she asked you that question about what if you were it pierced through all of the how did you say it? all the, the things, walls walls that satan had, had built up around built up me. around you yeah yes uh there there's something to that yes something to that but you know like you're talking about you know, telling the soil it's very very important to be able to plant that seed in good ground. 
you've got to till the soil. You know, you've got to be able to develop the soil to receive that seed so that it falls on good ground. Mm. You know, sometimes you got to seed, and yes, sometimes you got to go in and pull the weeds. You got to go in and get the stu- You get the soil, you plant the seed, but you got to, what, keep pulling the weeds out. Yeah. You got to pull the stones out. You got to put a cover over so it's not scorched by the sun. Sometimes you got to cover it with something mm-hmm. to keep it from being scorched. Yeah, we don't have control over other people's lives, but right. we can be a an intentional, ongoing yes. presence, planter, yes. tiller of soil. And uh, I think too many of us uh, give up. Like just your example, your story, right? I mean, you're sitting there with friends. Yes. Good friends. Yes. Good relationship. I mean, if you'd... Uh, if you'd have not known me at all, right, and I'm the one sitting down playing cards with you, and I yeah. say, uh, well, what if you were? It's like, oh, that jerk thinks that I'm going to hell. Who right. does he think he is? Exactly. But because it was somebody that you knew cared about you. I had a relationship with that yeah. person. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why in, in, in fellowship, like in High Praise Fellowship, you know, my wife and I, I mean, we'll get ready. The service is finished with. We're going to leave, you know. And it may take her a half hour, 45 minutes to leave because she's talking. She's fellowshipping. Yeah. I fellowship. I go early to church. I, go, I get to church. <laughs> uh, serves at 10 o'clock. I get there at 9, 9 15. Yeah, you were here early today. Yes. So. <laughs> I come, That's you true. know, and I come in, you know, and I, I fellowship in the beginning. As people walking, hey, how you do? I'm the A-type personality. I'm going to approach you. That's like the Minister Association. I approach the other people. They walk in before they get their name to you. Hey, how you doing? How's it going? You know, and I mean, it's just, you know, I'm there early. I fellowship early. Mm. Generally, when it's over with, I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know, I don't have time to fellowship now because I did that when I first got here. Well, that's uh, when you're a pastor, it's tricky because you don't yeah. really get to choose. If right. you want to see everybody, you got to be there early and late. And late. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. so you, you have to be there early when people arrive so because you have time to tell them. Then you go into praise and worship, and so then you service, and when you finish, you got to greet everybody when you leave. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. You're the first one to attend and the last one to leave. So uh, relationship's great, and... Uh, very important because that is what Jesus did with the apostles. Three years. They just didn't meet on Sunday afternoons or on the Sabbath on Friday nights. They were together five, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Every single day they spent the day together. He didn't always talk about scripture. He wanted to know how was Peter's mother doing? How was John and uh, James's wife doing? Yeah, he cared about people. He wanted to know how they were doing. Then 
his scripture time, his teaching was only a couple hours a day. If you if you you read through the scriptures, was only a couple hours a day. Yeah, because he was also gone off praying. Yes, (laughs) right. Yeah. So definitely digging. When we hear Matthew 28, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, right. baptizing them in the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. We hear in our modern world, we hear, okay, get a committee. Yeah. Get 501c3 documents. Yeah. Uh, get some money together. Yes. Get some land. Hire a professional get a building, put up, you know, chalkboards or now whiteboards, right? Yeah. Uh, get desks and chairs yeah. and have people look at a person who's doing the... That's not not at all, I think, with discipleship. I mean, there's no. maybe a piece of it that, that can, can do some of it, but uh, it's really an apprenticeship yeah. sort of... That's what Earl did to me because... Once we met each other, and we had that relationship to begin with, because we were cousins, we known each other for years. Mm. And so we hadn't seen each other in several years, but, I mean, I grew up with Earl. He was a bit older than I was, but, I mean, I grew up with Earl's and Earl's family. His mother and my mother were best friends, and they were first cousins. But when he met me, he knew how much scripture I had, because I'd been reading my daily walk Bible for a year and a half. Mm. And we had met at, a, at his brother's wedding, we constantly were talking about God the whole time. And so when we met, he said, okay, here's my cousin. I have a relationship with him, but he he's a rough diamond. I need to polish him. And he took me under his wing, and he worked out in Metairie where I worked at. And for three to four days a week, we would have we meet for lunch, and we'd spend the lunch together, yeah. talking about you know, sharing me what's the principles, the principles of God, you know, um, this principle, that principle. I don't know, uh, you know, a lot of people. We talked about this a little bit earlier too. The role of the pastor and the apostles and all these things yeah. in Ephesians four, right, yeah. is to equip. The, the saints, saints for, for the, the work, work of, of ministry. the ministry. Yes, and uh, you cannot disciple someone at church. No, you cannot. You can be a, you know, we you, you can you add can till the important pieces to yeah. it. Yeah, but ultimately, it takes Christians. Yes, you know, I think he's. If you're a disciple, you're supposed to make disciples. How do you do that? I keep coming back to right now, this time in our life, this season, you know, we have, it's my wife and I and our four kids. Yes. So I keep coming back to, well, I only got a few years left. Yep. My job is them at the moment. Yes. And uh, so I'm going to do what I can there. And then after that, maybe God will have some new disciples. Right. But but what about the folks that are already sort of, they've, they've got their... yes. Kids have left the nest and and now they're just enjoying life. Is that the goal? No. Who who's your next disciple? disciple? Yes. Who are you meeting with for lunch a few days a week? Who you, or at least once a week? Yes. 
and outside of church and getting to know really well and right. uh, helping them and letting them sort of speak into your life, you speak into their life. Uh, I think that's where – that's why the church, the church, the body of Christ in these various institutions, I think that's why there's a lot of struggles out there. Right, because, you know, Jesus never said, go get baby people born again. Go get people saved. Go make disciples. A disciple is disciplined in the order of something. You know, just getting some people to, you know, confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, which is wonderful. But the enemy is out there. That's why he's called an enemy. <laughs> <laughs> He's out. He's not staying still. He is very active. Yeah. We've got to go from moving them from receiving and believing in Jesus to understanding the principles of Jesus. And a phrase you used, I don't know if it was in here, but definitely before, head to heart. Head to heart. For me, my spiritual growth is every every time— Something changes in me. Yes. You know, and for me, it's, uh, you know, maybe because this is Lutheran background or what, you know, it's very slow, right? It's a very slow progress type thing where it's a little bit here, a little bit there. And then there are these moments where big things kind of happen. But, right. But it's always about taking what I already know yes. and believe to be true. Yes. And applying it in a way here where right. I go, oh, I say this is true, but here I'm acting like it's not true. Yeah. You yeah. know, I'm. why am I worried about something? Because I think that is way more important than God. Right. Or I think I'm so important that right. I think God is wrong if he lets it go a different way. Right. It's got to be this way. And so that's why I'm really like nervous about this and anxious because that's what I think has to happen. And, right. And if I think it has to happen, well, then it must be the right thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's no, what my wife, no. is, my wife does to me. She's got, a, my wife's got a, re- and that's what God brings people together for, you know, because when my pastor first asked me why I want to marry Camille, my response to him was because she makes me complete. Goes, well, explain that to me. I said, well, okay. I have my strengths. But with my strengths, I also have weaknesses. And my strengths cannot really overcome my weaknesses because we're all one. Mm-hmm. But Camille's strengths supports my weakness. And that's one thing that Camille does for me is that <laughs> she has to reel me in sometimes <laughs> because I have an experience that 90% of people they don't have in a hospital room I came face to face with death mm-hmm. Satan came to kill me And the word of God destroyed his methods against me. But when you experience 
that. It's a unique experience. Mm-hmm. As in with Paul, you know, what can man do to me? <laughs> yeah. He was beaten. He was caned. <laughs> you know, almost, I mean, look what Jesus went through. One thing that I've always have felt when I read the Gospels, what Jesus went through for me could never be anything I can imagine anybody else could do to me. Mm-hmm. That's right. When he was in the um, Gethsemane, he, I mean, Lord, Father, if this cup can pass from me, he was a human being. Yes, he was God, but he felt what we felt. He saw what we felt, what we see. He knew what he was coming down to. Yeah, it's... But the most important phrase... Not my will, will, but but yours. yours. Yeah, Yeah, he, uh, there are a lot of people that face scarier things with a lot more, you know, courage than what we see Jesus in the Gospels. And so to me, that says there must be something else there. Yes. It's not just the nails. Yes. It's the darkness. It's the. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's that right. being completely and totally alone. I think that's actually hell. Right. Hell is being ultimately and finally ignored completely by God and by everyone else. And that's what Jesus knows is coming. In fact, it's almost like it's it's beginning to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as that darkness is sort of coming over him as he's going to his father and maybe already not hearing from him yes. as he becomes sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, right? right? The, that moment, it's so bad he starts sweating blood, right? Yeah. Um, that's what's so painful. And uh, there's a Tim Keller I mentioned earlier. He, uh, he has this way of talking about I don't know if it's his or if he got it from somewhere else, but... He talks about, you know, what is the most pain? We're talking about relationships. Yeah. That's how you can reach people with the gospel. Well, that's because that's what's most important to us as humans. Yeah. We may not always acknowledge that, but people and relationships and love, that's really what's most important. And uh, in that moment, if, if you just think about the most pain you've ever in, endured, it's, yes. it's not physical. It's it's somebody you know that's been hurt or that's been taken from you. Yes. And the closer you are to them and the longer you've known them, the more it hurts. Yes. So if you pick up the newspaper and you read about somebody who dies on the other side of the world, you go, hmm, you turn the page to the next article. Yeah. If it's somebody in St. Tammany Parish, somebody nearby where we are right now, you go, oh, seems it's more important. Yes. matters more. If it's somebody you went to high school with, yes, somebody you knew pretty well, 
but maybe you haven't spoken to in a long time, you're like, oh, man, and it gives you this little bit more sense. But if it's somebody that you're married to, yes, if it's a parent where there's this intimacy that isn't found in a lot of other relationships and then all of a sudden there's either rejection or or they're taken from you, that's the stuff that yes. people bear with them the rest of their lives. Yes. And so imagine you are in a relationship with the the creator of the universe, right? Yes. You've been together since before time began and and it's this infinite yes relationship and an infinite closeness and intimacy that nothing compares to. Yeah. Nothing that we can and that is suddenly ripped apart, right? right. You're 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 rejected. That hurts. Yes. More than nails. When I was in prison ministry, what I would you know, would talk to some of the, the guys in prison ministry. I was, okay, who has children? Who has children? Okay. I want you to imagine. Take your one of your children. I want you to take them to Angola prison, the state prison, and tell the warden you want everybody in this prison released and my child is going to serve the penance or the sentence mm. of all the people still in this prison so release everybody and let my child serve this presence serve this sentence then three years later three years later take your child and go to the warden again you see those guys on death row I want all those guys released, and I want you to execute my child to serve their punishment. Mm. How many of y'all can do that? <laughs> Nobody can. Yeah. But that's what God did. Well, I also can't raise anybody from the dead. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean maybe in the name of Jesus, <laughs> but you know, I haven't, I haven't uh, practiced that, so... I just want to share one quick story. I I got to uh, I got to get going here. I got no problem, sorry. some folks that uh, I got to meet with here in just a little bit. Okay, but I want to share the story with you because it's a Gideon story. Okay, and it uh, it it sort of goes against some of the relationship stuff we've talked about. Like sometimes God just does stuff. Yeah, and it was my path to ministry you know i had a number of things that had happened to me that were sort of pushing me in ministry i was like okay god what if you want me to i'll do it but i don't know you know i i thought i was on a good career path and i (laughs) he's got his plans (laughs) he's got his plans right so i'm at this christian leadership retreat uh i had actually just heard gordon robertson okay with cbn um talk about his path to ministry and he it started with this mission trip and there was all these like divine things that happened to get him on the mission trip and then he's just experiencing weird things on the mission trip and then he talked about all the things that i was objecting to like well i'm not really that good of a person like i'm pretty (laughs) terrible you know i'm a sinner i'm i'm not i'm not perfect he he knocked down all of those things I uh, went up and talked to him afterward. He prayed uh, with me, and then I decided, okay, I'm going to go to my hotel room, or I'm not going to go to sleep until God kind of opens up 
the yes. heavens and tells me one way or the other all the audible voices yes. that you were yes. telling me about i'm like <laughs> well i asked for those and i didn't get one <laughs> but uh i i finally was like three in the morning i gave up walking around this complex whatever where we were and um i said oh god speaks through his word so I go into the drawer and I pull out the Gideon Bible and yep. I did one of these, which it sounded like what you were doing yeah. when you got Acts one eight. Yes, and just quick story, quick fact, I guess is better. Uh, I graduated North Babylon High School. Okay, that's my yeah. high school is North Babylon. Okay, <laughs> so I open up and I get uh, Jeremiah fifty one verse six. Flee from Babylon, save your life. Yes. <laughs> I was like, that is way too specific. This, has got, this can't be it. Let me do it again. And I did it again. I get Romans 12, and it's, you know, uh, be transformed. by the, Offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice. Right. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I'm like, oh. Okay, so I called my parents, and we had these weird conversations because it was like 3 or 4 in the morning. They were asleep, and, yeah. you know, and so um, – but that, that that's my yep. my Gideon story. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so. God has a way of catching our attention. He does, and I've actually been disappointed that there aren't as many Gideon Bibles in hotels that uh yes we're running to lots and lots of hotel uh managers or owners of hotels who will be more and more resistant to the Gideon Bibles mm-hmm. because we are a volunteer volunteer ministry you know we have to go to to the manager to the um the the owner of a uh, hotel or motel and say we like to place these in there. But, you know, the ultimate, they have to agree. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to one hotel here in Slidell. He said, oh, no, I still have plenty of, you know, can we go by your rooms and make sure? Everyone? Oh, no, we got plenty here. The, the, the housekeeping takes care of that. Yeah, but we'll go check the room. And there's still 42 Bibles <laughs> sitting in, yeah, it's been there for five years. Yeah. Well, that's why we just got to find new ways to do this. Yes. We got we to gotta reach people uh, in person, relationally, and... Uh, well, yeah. prayer. That's the biggest... Breaking through prayer. things with We got to keep praying, got to keep praying, got to keep praying. Praying for those opportunities to uh, present themselves. But, but hey, it's been great to be you with too. you. And, uh, and my pleasure. I hope to see you again here Absolutely. soon, or uh, at least at another meeting. But uh, until then... No problem. Hey, y'all, taste and see that the Lord is good. There Amen. is uh, power in prayer yes. and transformation in the lives of those that yes. uh, follow Christ. And uh, it's more important than a spouse even. Amen. You need Jesus more than you need a spouse. And uh, I hope this has been helpful in leading you a little bit closer to Jesus. So Amen. taste and see that the Lord is good. Ice cream is sweet, but Jesus is far sweeter. God bless you. Bye-bye. Amen.